What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is the Dance of Life podcast, and I'm Tudor Alexander, your host on this wonderful day. I hope it's wonderful for you. For me, it's nice and sunny. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's starting to get pretty hot. So pray for me because Phoenix is Satan's background backyard uh, during the summer, and I think it's going to get really hot. So anyway, without further ado, today we're jumping into part nine of the end time series that we're doing. This is going to be wrapping up actually kind of the last nine episodes. We have still quite a few to go, but we have spent the first uh, few weeks of this series unpacking this idea of a millennial kingdom. In the very first episode, we looked at the five main end times views. There's more than that, but the five main end times views and how the main thing that separates these views for the most part is this idea of the millennial kingdom. Like when is it happening? What is the nature of it? Is it spiritual? Is it physical? Is it exactly a thousand years? Is it maybe a longer period of time? You know, these types of questions. And so based on where you stand with that, that determines your main end times view. Now, with my perspective with this whole series, it's not about really making you identify with a particular perspective, because if you recall from that first episode, there were a lot of problems with every single view. You know, every view has something that it you know, that it teaches maybe that it's interesting or correct or very poignant. At the same time, it has a lot of problems attached to it. Because again, you can't have a one-size-fits-all thing when it comes to something as complex as the end times, as eschatology. And so I don't really have a particular definition for my view. I try to go with the Bible as much as possible, and that's my goal with this series. Of course, everybody says that. <laughs> everybody says that their view is biblical, um, but the, but the point is if you've been with me for the last couple of weeks and you've checked out some of these episodes we've done, some things that people believe are biblical are really not biblical at all. Like dispensationalism, which is really the main thing I'm trying to refute here with all these previous episodes is really just a very poorly misinterpreted theology. And it's based on this whole literal, physical way of reading the Bible. It was created by Jesuits to take attention off the papacy. And so all this idea of a future Antichrist, a literal physical temple that Israel has a, its own plan of salvation, so we have to watch Israel. They're the center of the universe, and we have to watch them and see, because that's God's prophetic timepiece. All this stuff is really a deception. And again, people who believe in dispensationalism will believe that their views are very biblical, um, but using Bible verses and using the Bible to support your view doesn't necessarily mean that your view is biblical. And that's really what we have to remember. And so my goal with this series is, of course, we have to look at Scripture. We have to use the Bible, but we have to really read context. We have to look at the context of how things were written, why they were written. And so far, we have shown that this idea of a future physical millennial reign just doesn't work with the context of Scripture for many reasons. We know we looked at how Jesus has to be king so that he can, he's king and priest at the same time. And so with that said, he has to be king right now. And how that kingship was assumed at, after the ascension, not some point in time in the future, because Jesus has to be king and priest. We also looked at how Satan lost his hold over death. You know, we lost he lost his power as a principality when the cross happened. You know, he was dethroned. He lost. 
So he was bound. Now, he wasn't bound from his activity, as in all evil on the earth has stopped, because obviously that's not true. But he was bound from specific, for fulfilling certain things, as in gathering the nations to battle against Christ, as in, you know, overpowering them with the fear of death and all these other worldly things that Satan had, because he was the God of this world, right? We also looked at how God's promises to Abraham were fulfilled. Now, that's not a very exciting topic, but I think it's actually very interesting because one of the things that this whole millennial reign hinges on is that certain things need to be fulfilled to Israel as a state or as a kingdom again. And that's just not true. The scripture is very clear that all of the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were already fulfilled, completely fulfilled. All the land promises, and of course, the promise that all the families of the earth would be blessed, that was fulfilled, (coughs) excuse me, through Jesus. We also looked at a lot of these Old Testament passages. This was, I believe, in the last episode where some people use to support the millennial reign, like Zechariah 14, and how they're just, usually they're either talking about the eternal state, meaning once Christ returns and ushers in eternity, what's that going to look like? These people were talking about something that they really didn't fully understand, but it was revealed to them, and they were communicating it to an Old Testament audience that didn't have the full revelation of Scripture. And so they're using terms that people would understand. But if you read the overall passages, like Zechariah 14 was a, a perfect example because a lot of people think that's talking about some future millennial reign where Christ is ruling in Jerusalem. But Zechariah 14, if you read the entire chapter, it mentions sacrifices. It mentions keeping the Feast of Booths. Otherwise, there's consequences. So the question is, are we going back to some sort of old covenant when Jesus returns? And that's the answer to that is obvious. The answer is no, we're not. This is not talking about that. It's using metaphorical language to explain something that people had no revelation of. Like, how would you explain, you know, something like grace and new new earth, new Jerusalem, and all of the realities will be, we have resurrected bodies, we have an eternal state. How would you explain that to people who don't know anything about grace? They're under the old law and the old covenant. And so these passages are either taken out of context or they are passages that are talking about the eternal state using Old Testament language. In either case, it's not talking about the millennial reign, like a thousand-year literal period where Jesus is reigning. In fact, there is no mention of a thousand-year period where Jesus is reigning outside of Revelation 20. And if you recall, the number thousand there is actually plural. It's chilioi. It's thousands. And so it really begs the question, like, are we really interpreting it correctly if we're insisting on this physical reign of Christ for a thousand years in Jerusalem physically in the future? And of course, the answer is is no. I don't think that we are interpreting it correctly if we believe that. Now, I used to believe that. And thank goodness that I see differently because there's a lot of concept, there's serious consequences to what we believe. Some beliefs more than others. And in this case, there are serious consequences because if you believe that Jesus is not king, then you're unintentionally denying the gospel. Without Jesus as king, there is no priesthood. Without the priesthood, there's no intercession. Without intercession, there's no gospel. And besides that, besides all the other errors of dispensationalism and futurist thinking in general, putting a lot of attention on physical things 
rather than seeing the spiritual realities that are happening. All the things we're going to be, next week we're going to start getting into the book of Daniel. And all the things that Daniel talks about when he prophesies about these world empires and the Antichrist power, they're all political, religious, religious power, religio-political powers. There's spiritual realities happening. They're not like a singular person coming and standing in the physical temple and proclaiming himself to be God. We saw that the temple, a couple episodes ago, both the apostles and Jesus spoke of it as a spiritual reality. The third temple being rebuilt right now in Israel, the physical temple, is a mockery of Bible prophecy. It's it's a mockery of God's word because ultimately the, the temple was already built. Jesus was the cornerstone, and that temple was a spiritual reality. And it is a spiritual reality currently because we are living in the millennium. The temple has already been built by the Messiah, and that temple is the church. It's the body of believers that form the temple. There's so many metaphors, construction metaphors, of how we are stones, we're living stones, we're pillars. Christ is the cornerstone. Our body, meaning the body of Christ, is the temple. I mean, there's so much of that that we covered that I think it's really ignorant and... I don't know, foolish to to insist on this physical interpretation where the Jews have to have their third physical temple for the Antichrist to step into it. That's nonsense. Then you ignore the reality, which is the truth, which is if if the temple is spiritual, it's the body of believers, it's the church, who has already sat in that temple and proclaimed themselves to be God? That's the question. And we will answer that question because that reality has already happened and it will come to a full head probably in the next couple of years. Who knows? But in either case, remember this. There is no rapture either. There's The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Jesus returns, everything is happening, including the resurrection of the wicked and the righteous. Now, the resurrection is what destroys death. And because death is the last enemy, when would there be a millennial kingdom? The answer is... There wouldn't be. We're living in the millennial kingdom. Jesus has to reign while his enemies are being put under his feet. Obviously, if you look around the world today, the enemies are all around us. <laughs> so that gives you a big a big clue. Because once the last enemy is destroyed, which is death, there are no more enemies. And so we are in eternity at that point. So there is no room for this millennial kingdom being a future reality. Now that is a millennial position, if you remember the five different end times views from the first episode, but I don't consider myself an amillennial either because there are so many issues that amillennials have in their eschatology. And we talked about those in the first episode. One of them is that they spiritualize everything so much so that they don't look at Bible prophecy unfolding historically. And as a result, you know, you can spiritualize practically everything, right? And With that point, then you miss how things are fulfilled and you miss where you are in time. And I believe that's a grave error on the part of all millennials. They're they're right about the millennial kingdom. I think that all millennials read scripture correctly in terms of the millennial kingdom because it can't be a physical future reality for many reasons. And I hope, I hope that you've gotten that so far. Really, there's so many reasons that you don't, again, you don't have to study everything. You just have to know enough to rule something out. That's really the point here. 
you know, you could spend the rest of your life studying end times events. I don't want you to do that. I'm not going to do that. But I did put together this series so that you would be armed with enough knowledge to write off things that just don't make sense. That's really what it's about. Don't spend your your whole life studying end times events. It's interesting. It's fun. But at the same time, you can get wrapped up into it and it pulls you away from more important things like typology in the Bible, like evangelism, like studying the Trinity or apologetics or all these types of things that are so important for our faith. There are more topics to study than end times stuff. But we're going to do it justice in this series and do it justice with great detail so that you are armed and these episodes are a resource for you. But in this episode, we're going to look and focus more on, again, this is wrapping up this idea of the kingdom, and we're going to look at the nature of the kingdom. We're going to see how it's a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. We're also going to see how the church, the kingdom, the body of Christ, the house of God, the temple, the Lord's table, all these things are just different pictures of really the same reality. So particularly, again, the church is the kingdom. Now, the other thing we'll look at is how all of these things tie together, again, in a spiritual sense and not in a physical sense, because they are equated throughout Scripture, both by the apostles and by Jesus. So let's first start with the church and the kingdom being equated to one another. Now that's done in, a, in several places, but I've picked out a Scripture from Matthew 16, chapter, chapter 16, verses 18 through 19. And Jesus says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you buy on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now there's a couple things to to mention here with this very poignant verse. First First and foremost, the Catholic interpretation of this, where Peter is the rock and he's the first pope, I mean, this is just nonsense, because for one good reason, Peter's dead. Peter's not around anymore. So that was very short-lived if that was the case. Now, throughout Scripture, we have the rock, the image of a rock, or even the title of the rock, is appropriated to God. And of course, we know that Jesus is God, so Jesus is the rock that this is talking about. It's not Peter. So you have to get that out of your mind if that's what you believe, because it's a lie. It puts your attention on physical things, and it, by sleight of hand, it gives all this authority, undeserved authority, to an institution, which is the church, as a physical reality. And we'll get to this because there's a difference between the church as a spiritual reality, which is what I'm talking about here, and how that's been transformed through sleight of hand into the institution. And that's something we have to be careful of. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. But that's the first thing I want to mention. Another thing I want to mention is, you notice that Jesus equates the church and the kingdom. So they're the same thing. He says, I will, on this rock I will build my church. And then the next verse says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom and the church are equated. They're one and the same. Another thing to keep in mind with this is that this is going to happen. Whatever's happening here, when, when Christ builds his church and he's giving, giving them the keys to the kingdom, that's happening within their lifetimes, Right? He didn't say, I'm going, I will, in a thousand years, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. You're going to be resurrected and you're going to reign with me for a thousand years. Absolutely not. That's not, remember from last episode, the first resurrection 
is only mentioned in Revelation 20. Every time the resurrection is talked about, it's a global, now when I say global, I don't mean globe, but it's a worldwide, uh, because I said that last episode, I was like, oh man, I don't believe in a globe. But anyway, that's, that's a topic for another study. But it's a worldwide event, and it's a universal event. And so there's no first, second, first resurrection, second resurrection, third resurrection. It's all one resurrection. So the first resurrection spoken of only by John in Revelation, which is a apocalyptic literature, it's symbolic book, highly symbolic, means something else. It's talking about being born again. So when Jesus is telling Peter that he's going to give him the keys of the kingdom, there's an assumption there that you're going to be alive when this happens. It's going to happen in your lifetime. So keep that in mind because that's really important. But now the church is the body of Christ is seen throughout scripture, both in the letters of Paul and by the apostles. So if we look in, and Jesus himself, we look in John chapter two, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So in John, very early on, we read that the temple is the body of Christ. And of course, that's going to carry even more weight as we look at other verses, other writings, because the temple is continually related, the temple, the body of Christ, it's a spiritual reality of the church, which is the group of believers. If we look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and he said, and he is the head of the body. Now, which body is he talking about? This is a spiritual body, which is the church, which is exactly what we talked about. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he is the head of the body, and he's also king, so he's king of the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? So he's both, he's preeminent in everything. Head of the body, he's also the king, king of the kingdom. So I wonder if they're the same thing. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. One body with many members. This is verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And and he goes on to talk about the body of Christ, and this is obviously spiritual language. This is the point here. This is spiritual language. He's using a physical reality, which we all know, our body. Our body has many members. I have five fingers on my hand. Hopefully you do too you know, five toes on our feet. We have different cells running around, organs. A body has many members. And in that same way, the body of Christ, spiritual reality, has many members. And each has their value, each has things that they contribute, and so on. So that's important. They're the same. He's equating the body of Christ with the temple, with the body of believers. It's all the same reality. Now, if we compare this to John chapter 3, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So unless you're born again, if you remember from the last episode, we talked about how do you get into, and we'll repeat this in this episode as well, how do you get into the kingdom? 
You get into the kingdom by being born again. Well, how are you part of the body of Christ? Same thing. You're born again. Now, the question is, are these two different things? Do you have to be a member of both? Or are they really the same thing with the same way that you enter it? They're just picturing different angles of this reality. And that's something that you have to keep in mind throughout this episode, because there are so many different terms that are used to describe the same thing. There's the Lord's table, which we'll get into. There's the kingdom. There's the church, the body, the temple, the house of God. There's like seven different terms, literally, that are used to describe the same reality. Now, in Ephesians, there's a couple of interesting parallels between the church and the body. If we look at chapter 1, verse 22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is, the, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, which is his body. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. One body we're reconciled into, which is what? The church, according to Paul previously. Now, later in chapter 5, verse 23, where he's talking about wives and husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So again, the church is his body. The body of Christ is the church. So we can see pretty clear, and these are just a few, there's a lot more, but I just picked a few key verses to equate the body of Christ with the church. The body is the temple, is the church, which is the kingdom. And it all comes together quite nicely. Now, if we look at the house of God as the church, that's also another, you know, when we looked at that episode a couple of weeks ago about spiritual things in Israel, the third temple, and all the stuff that's going on there, and how it's just this major deception. Don't fall, please don't fall for this deception of the third temple and their false messiah coming around and how it's all Bible prophecy coming true. It's not. It's engineered false prophecy. The futurists, which are the Jesuits, created futurism to distract you from the real Antichrist power on the earth, which is the papacy. Now, in order to do that, they had to create a physical, fleshly interpretation of the events in Daniel and Revelation and all of these, you know, different texts that are prophetic. And so they are fulfilling that. They're engineering that into a self-fulfilling prophecy so that people will be fooled and say, ah, Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. Now, what is the ultimate end of that? Well, I see a few possibilities. The possibility, number one, would be that they're going to bring a false Christ and people will think that Jesus is here and Satan will masquerade as the Son of God and people will worship him and take the mark of the beast. That's number one. And that could very well happen. The, the Christians in the second century believed that that would happen. So that's something. Another op- possibility is, well, maybe they're just engineering a false peace. All these dialectics are going to lead to a false peace and a false millennial reign. And now we're in the golden age and, and Jesus is going to come after, you know, a thousand years of ruling and we have to subordinate all of it. This is the post-millennial view where you have to, where the belief is we have to subordinate creation and, and reality to a Christian kingdom, 
an earthly Christian kingdom before Jesus will return. So that's an, that's an option too. Either way, it's not good. Either way, it leads to the mark of the beast and to the control of the Antichrist power. And that's what this is about. And so you got to stop watching Israel and everything that's happening in Israel and believing that, you know, that's the prophetic time clock and prophecy is being fulfilled in Israel. It's not. It's really not. It, you know, the prophecy has already been fulfilled. Most of it has been fulfilled. Now, there's still things to be fulfilled. But the little horn power has already ruled for 1,260 years. Days are years, and we'll talk about all this in Daniel. Um, you know, the, most of the seals and trumpets have, we're between the sixth and seventh seal and trumpet right now. We're in the 11th hour. So there's a lot to talk about, obviously, and that's why this series is so long. But the point is this, when we looked at the episode on Israel and the third temple, which I highly recommend that you go check out, we realized that all these discussions of the temple were spiritual. The temple has already been built, and that's the church. The temple is the church. Christ is the cornerstone of a spiritual reality. And if you're born again, you're part of the kingdom, which makes you part of the temple, which makes you part of the church. So in this episode now, we're looking at the house of God as the church. Same thing. House of God, temple, church. People had the house of God as a physical reality in the Old Testament, but in that was a, a type and shadow for the spiritual reality in the New Testament, which is the body of believers, the kingdom, the territory of the human heart. It's not a physical place that can be torn down or destroyed. It's a kingdom that will last forever because it's a spiritual kingdom. And of course, there will be a fulfillment of all things when Jesus returns, and we will have a physical existence, but the millennial reign is now. It's a, it's a spiritual reality. But let's let's look at this house of God as the church. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Wow. So much going on here. Now, if you read this literally, physically, fleshly, like dispensationalists read, how would you interpret this? Well, the uncomfortable interpretation would be it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Like you're literally piling up corpses to build this foundation. That's nonsense. This is spiritual language. The foundation is spiritual. Christ himself is the cornerstone. Did Jesus turned into a stone in the corn? No, of course not. This is a spiritual reality, spiritual language, talking about his spiritual reality. Now, there's a couple important things here. The household of God is equated to the temple. Now, you remember the temple is the church, so that means the household of God, which is the temple, is the church, which is the body of Christ, which is the kingdom. So you see how all this comes together? It's all the same thing from different lenses. Now, in Zechariah chapter 6, there's a prophecy of the kingdom, and there's a couple things that are important there because, again, Old Testament realities were speaking of things that they didn't really understand fully, but they were being revealed to them, and so they communicated them as best they could through Old Testament language that was given to them. Now, in Zechariah chapter 6, there's a prophecy of the kingdom, and this is verse 12 through 13. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch... 
that's the Messiah, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. That's already happened. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor, me being a king, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now this, the Jews today, this is very important that you understand this. The Jews today still believe in two Messiahs. They believe that there's going to be a Ben Joseph and a Ben David, meaning a suffering Messiah and a conquering Messiah. They don't understand that all of that was fulfilled in Jesus, that the suffering Messiah came first, and when Jesus returns, he's the conqueror. Now, he's already conquered, but he's going to return and destroy all evil. He's going to destroy the devil. He's going to destroy, destroy death. And God forbid you're on the wrong side of that when he returns. But the point is this. these are not. This is not talking about two people. The Old Testament struggled. People struggled to understand things like the Trinity. You know, there's this idea of two powers in heaven. That was a theology up until the first century after Jesus came, then they declared it a heresy. I wonder why. But they struggled to understand this idea of the Trinity. They struggled to understand how the Messiah could also could be a conqueror, but also, you know, like a suffering, humble servant. Like, how is that possible? They struggle with that. And that's why the Jews who didn't accept Jesus, because the ones who did became Christians. That's why Christianity is a continuation of the Old Testament. Judaism is rebellion. Judaism rejected Jesus, the Messiah, and and so they're forced to read things very fleshly and physically. They read this passage as talking about two people. The king and the priest is, are two different people, but in, in actuality, it's the same person. And we saw that in the Jesus is King episode. Jesus is both high priest and he's king. He fulfills both. He is ruler and conqueror, and he's the one who intercedes and bridges us between God and man. And so, with that in mind, the ruling would happen. Now, let's put this together with this verse. He's going to build the temple, and he's going to rule. Now, is this talking about a future physical temple reality? I don't think so, because first off, the apostles and Jesus himself all testify that the temple is a spiritual reality, and that the temple is the church the household of God. They understood what all of these things really meant. They, they were, this language is using physical realities, which were real. There was a second temple. There was a first temple. There was a house of God. But those things got destroyed because they were types and shadows for a future reality that couldn't be destroyed. And the apostles, of course, understood this. And Jesus himself testified about it. So, if that's the case, then we we can't force this physical interpretation. Jesus built the temple. Jesus was the Messiah. He's the branch. He built the temple when he first came to earth. He's not going to build a physical temple when he returns. Think about how just nonsense that would be. Would there be sacrifices? Are you kidding me? I don't think so. It's not talking about that. It's talking about a spiritual reality where the Messiah has built the temple through his blood. He purchased the church through his blood. Now, what's also important is that the ruling would happen at that time as well. So he's building the temple, he's ruling, and he's going to be a priest. All these realities are coming together. King, priest, temple. He's going to build the temple, 
He did that through his death on the cross and giving of the Holy Spirit. He's ruling. That's when he ascended into heaven. Remember the whole Daniel, uh, the son of the scene with the Son of Man in Daniel 7, where the Son of Man presents himself before the Ancient of Days? That happened after the ascension. Remember, the Son of Man is, is coming to God, not leaving from God to go to earth. So that's, that's important. That happened after the ascension. And of course, we know from so many places that Jesus is already seated at the right hand of God. It's a past tense reality for us. It's not a future reality. He's already ruling and he's already priest. So all these things were fulfilled in that Zechariah is talking about. They were fulfilled in Jesus at his first coming when he first came to the earth because he built the temple and he became king and also priest. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verses 14 through 15, we see again that the house of God and church are equated. Verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, this is Paul talking to Timothy, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Again, spiritual language and Again, also equating the household of God to the church of the living God. One and the same thing. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 5, we see that a spiritual house equals the royal priesthood. Now, if you remember from previous episodes, royal priesthood is also the same as the kingdom. It's all the same reality. Chapter 2, verse 4, 1 Peter. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, again, you can't read this literally. Spiritual house, it's a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We are living stones. Now, what does that mean? Like, we're going to all line up together and form a wall? Absolutely not. That is not what this is talking about. Now, it seems silly to believe that, but that's really what dispensationalism forces you to believe because they ignore the spiritual realities presented in Scripture. Everything is literal. Everything is chronological. Everything is absolutely fleshly and physical. There's no deeper typology to anything. There's no deeper meaning. So this is a very dangerous way to read Scripture. Because obviously you have verses like these and so many others that are testifying to the spiritual reality that's happened after the cross, which is the giving of the Holy Spirit, the creating of the kingdom. Remember, the the kingdom would come with great power. What happened on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came with great power and a lot of people converted. There was speaking in tongues. You know, there was, it was a crazy event. And so the kingdom already happened. It's, already, it's here. Christ is king. And he's also a high priest. The body, the temple has already been built. <laughs> it's not the third physical temple. And again, if the temple's already been built, then who has stood in the temple and proclaimed himself to be God? Hmm, there is someone. And not someone specifically. It is a entity. It's a institution. And we'll look at that. But it's definitely not some future charming guy that's going to walk into a physical temple and proclaim himself to be God. That is a lie to take you, take your eyes off the truth. Now compare this, what we just read to uh, a little bit later to verse nine in chapter two. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. If we read Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, John says, And made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So being priests and being in the kingdom and being a priesthood, being a holy nation, all that stuff is the same reality. These things are, the apostles are seeing Old Testament shadows and types being fulfilled in the new reality, in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Spiritual houses equals priesthood, equals holy nation, equals kingdom. It's all the same reality. It's the body of believers, and the territory is the human heart and human mind. The kingdom doesn't have walls. It can't be destroyed. It's constantly growing, and it's spiritual in nature because we have a spiritual king. Just like it was in the Old Testament. If you remember, before Saul was anointed king, why was Saul anointed king? Because the Israelites rejected God as king over them. God was a spiritual king. He was omnipresent, invisible. Now, he was also visible because he manifested himself, and people still rejected him. But people rejected God as king over them. But instead of having a spiritual king that was everywhere, that they could pray to, and that would fight their battles, they wanted a physical king. They wanted to trade the invisible, all-powerful God for a fleshly representative. And God gave them exactly what they wanted. If you remember from Samuel, Saul was the best-looking guy, and he's literally tall, dark, and handsome. That's how the Bible describes him. He's the best-looking guy there is, and everybody's like, oh, that, that's got to be our king. He just looks like a king. And Saul was a horrible king, and that was the whole point. He was, God was letting them have what they want so that he could prove that lusting after the eyes leads you to death. Well, at the same time, he set a precedent for the future king, the future Messiah, which would return back to what was the original plan, a spiritual king. That was what the Israelites had when they were freed from Egypt. They had a spiritual king, and they rejected that spiritual king. And dispensationalism and Judaism, which are practically the same thing, they are doing the same mistake, which is they want a fleshly, physical reality. And that's why we have to reject it. Now, the prophecy of the Messiah, building a house and a kingdom, initially they thought this was a physical reality. But as you can see from all the apostles, they realized later that it was a spiritual reality. Remember when the apostles said to Jesus, oh, are you going to bring the kingdom now? They thought that Jesus was going to bring a physical fleshly kingdom, just like Solomon, that Israel would have its glory days again over its enemies and all these things, and they didn't realize until after the resurrection that all these things were fulfilled spiritually in much much more interesting and greater way. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. It's talking about Solomon. He's talking to David, and he's talking about Solomon, but a lot of people say that this applies more to the Messiah. So let's take a look at it. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, God is talking to David 
you know, this is, there's some shadows here about Solomon, but it's really talking about Messiah as well. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, obviously that's not talking about Solomon because Solomon's dead and that kingdom is long gone. Verse 14, I will be, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So this is, the main thing to get out of here is, yes, it is talking about Solomon, but it's more fulfilled in Christ because the kingdom that Christ established is forever. And that kingdom started 2,000 years ago when Christ ascended, he became king, the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, and the church began. And so to be part of the kingdom is to be born again. Remember, you, you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Well, that's the same way you enter the church. That's the same way you enter the house of God. That's the same way you enter the body. All these things are the same. And the important thing to get out of this verse that we just read in Samuel is that the Messiah would build the temple. Again, it's it's the Messiah that builds the temple. Now you tell me, is this third temple that's being rebuilt, this physical third temple in Israel, is Jesus building that? I don't think so. No, first and foremost, because they're building it to hold sacrifices in it. That is an affront to God, and it's an affront to the gospel. So definitely not. But the temple is a spiritual reality. It was built by the Messiah because the, the house of God, the physical reality you saw in the Old Testament was just a type and shadow for an invisible spiritual reality fulfilled in the church. That's really what it's all about. And so the point of this verse is that Initially, people thought, oh, okay, well, the Messiah is going to build the house of God. He's going to build the temple. And, you know, of course, Solomon fulfilled that. He he built the second temple. David couldn't build the temple. He made the plans for it. But Solomon built the second temple. There were some glory days for Israel. But then Solomon ended up getting corrupted towards the end of his life. And, you know, the, the rest is history. Israel got conquered and dispersed, you know, so that's not what this is ultimately talking about. The temple that Solomon built was a shadow, is a foreshadowing of the ultimate reality of Christ ruling as king while his temple has been built in the church. He's also king and priest, of course, so he's interceding. So all those realities are coming together. It's so beautiful. It really is when you see the the spiritual nature of these things. But Let's look at a couple more in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, your here, your is plural. In, in English, we don't get that, but in the Greek, it's plural. And so what Paul is talking about here is your as in the body of believers. A lot of people have used this verse to say, well, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, in some sense, we could think that. But really, this verse is not talking about that. The the verse is talking about you all. It's writing to the Corinthians. Your body, the body of believers, the body of Christ, just like in all the other letters. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple is a spiritual reality. It's not a physical reality. That's the point. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now again, this is Old Testament language that Paul is appropriating to New Testament realities. The Jews thought that God was going to make a glorious physical temple and rebuild it, and the Messiah is going to come and conquer all the Gentiles, and they're, they're going to be like Solomon again. That's the idea. That was the that was the glory days of Israel. We're going to be like that again. They didn't realize that the whole glory days of Israel with Solomon was just a shadow of a much greater reality, of a spiritual reality. But that required spiritual eyes instead of looking at physical things and after physical realities. And some people got it, like the Christians who became, or sorry, like the Jews who became Christians, like Paul and the apostles and all the disciples. And some people didn't, like the rabbis and Pharisees who hated Jesus and who basically ended up starting Judaism many centuries later. And today, Judaism still looks after fleshly things. And in that episode on the temple that we talked about, which again, please go check it out if you haven't, there's a quote there from a, an expert in Judaism that Judaism, the salvation, has always been about a material, fleshly, observable thing. Whereas compared to the Christian perspective, it's a spiritual, invisible state of relationship with God. Drastically different theologies. And dispensation, that's why I said dispensationalism is Judaism. Because it's just wrapped in a Christian bow, but really it's Judaism. There, there's no way around it. You're looking at fleshly, physical things. You think that Israel has a separate plan of salvation. I mean, it's just, it's really very anti-gospel. It, it really is. I'm sorry to say it. Dispensationalism has so many contradictory things to the gospel. I really hope more people realize the deception. But the conclusion from all this is very simple. The body of Christ is the temple, which is the house of God, which is the kingdom. All of these are the same spiritual reality. It is communion with God through the Holy Spirit and fellowship with other believers. That's what the church is. That's what the kingdom is. It's a beautiful thing. Now, who belongs to the church and who belongs to the kingdom? How do you determine that? Well, we know that. We look to John chapter 3 where you had to be born again to join the, join the kingdom. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ. So let's look at this for a second. For you may be sure of this, that this is verse 5, everyone who is sexually immoral and impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So the kingdom of Christ is the kingdom of God. Now, to join the kingdom, you have to be born again. When did Christ start ruling? When did he, it was when he sat down at the right hand of God. Where did he, when did he sit at the right hand of God? That was after ascending. That was a long time ago for us. So that means the kingdom has already started. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ. All these things are synonymous. Now in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. First and foremost, look at that tense, transferred. That's a past tense uh, verb, has transferred. This is a past tense reality. It's already happened. How did he transfer us? By giving us forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. So that's how you become part of the kingdom. 
So the, the conclusion is this. The church and the kingdom, now think about this very clearly, the church and the kingdom are made up of the same people. People who are saved, people who are born again. Jesus is both king and priest simultaneously. He has to be. So now, king is head of the kingdom. High priest is head of the church. Do you see how that works? The king, being king and priest, means he's head of the church and king of the kingdom because they're the same thing. It's a reality that's multidimensional, but it's one reality. All the pagan authorities, we'll get, gosh, we're going to get more into this in the future, so I hope you stick around, but all the pagan authorities, pagan Rome, Egypt, all these pagan, even modern day, the papacy, again, we'll get into that, but they have tried to mimic and copy, because the enemy can only copy, try to mimic and copy this idea of ultimate authority by being king and priest. All the Caesars, the Roman pontiffs were king and high priest. The Babylonians, That's this is from Babylon, by the way, the whole Pontifex Maximus, which is the Latin title, or I should say the title that the Pope has, Pontifex Maximus. Where is that from? We'll unpack that in a future episode, but that is from Babylon. Babylon is the high priest, Pontifex Maximus is this high priest slash king. It's the ultimate authority, right? Both religious, spiritual, and physical, military. So the enemy has tried to copy this throughout history. All the Caesars were worshipped as gods because they were both high priest and king. Now ask yourself this, that's a telling sign now, isn't it? We know that the enemy can only copy. So if he's copying, what is he copying? Well, he's copying the truth, which is that Jesus is king and priest simultaneously, and he's already king. And well, there's that. So the idea is that they want to control both the spiritual and physical reality, which is not going to happen. They're trying, and that's why there's going to be a mark of the beast. That's why there's been types and shadows for the mark of the beast throughout history. But they're going to fail because we already know the end. The end is assured, and we know that Christ is victorious. He was victorious at the cross. Satan has been bound and dethroned, and Christ is already king, and he's going to return. And when he returns, let's pray that everybody who needs to be will be on the right side of that situation. (laughs) Now, the Lord's table is another thing I want to look at, which is, again, another title for the same thing. It's synonymous with the church, the kingdom, the body, the temple, the house of God. And it's this idea of fellowship. If we look in Luke chapter 22, verse 18, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus is at the last supper and he's saying he's not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now we know that the kingdom of God will come with power and that power happened at Pentecost. But if we compare this to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, the cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. There we go again, the spiritual reality. If we all partake of one bread. So all of this idea of partaking in the body of Christ through the Lord's table and through the breaking of bread, is painting a picture of fellowship and communion. It's being part of the church. It's being part of the body of Christ. 
It's being part of the kingdom. Now, when did the kingdom come? At Pentecost. That's when the church began. And we know that they partook of the Lord's table as a tradition, as a breaking of bread, as something they did weekly. And that was part of fellowship. It was in a, it was a physical expression of a spiritual reality. So they were at the Lord's table after Pentecost. That's when everything was started with the church and people started breaking bread and having fellowship with one another. That was the church. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And what happened? Well, we had the tongues. We had a bunch of people got converted. You had the news, the good news spreading out into Jerusalem and going out from there into the Gentiles, into the nations. And so the church began at Pentecost. That's very clear. We, we discussed that in a previous episode. But the point is this. When we partake in the table, the Lord's table, which is breaking bread together, having fellowship, being at the Lord's table is partaking in the kingdom. Now, after the resurrection, Jesus met with the disciples. He spent time with them. They partook of the Lord's table after the resurrection. And the kingdom came with Pentecost. So all of these things timed very perfectly together in a relatively short period of time. Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection. So within, um, you know, almost two months, all these things came together very quickly. This is why throughout Jesus's ministry, both the apostles and Jesus discussed the kingdom is imminent. Jesus commanded them to tell them, look, the kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom of God has come. It's imminent. It had this idea of like, it's, it's coming. It's here. It's very close. And so if the kingdom is some future reality thousands of years later, that just doesn't make sense with what scripture says. But if this kingdom was a spiritual reality that was imminent, meaning the spirit would be given freely, people would become born again, that's irreversible. You, you know, the gospel would go out through all the nations. This is an imminent thing that's going to happen. Then that that makes sense. So it's all about communion. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's all about communion. The church is the kingdom, which is the Lord's table. We looked at this Lord's table actually in more detail in a previous episode on Jesus being king and some other episodes we looked at where the millennial kingdom we talked about that as well. So go check that out if you're more interested. This idea of the Lord's table is actually, I've only picked out a few places to look at it, but there's a lot more to talk about it as a fellowship reality. And again, it's just looking at the kingdom through a different lens. The Lord's table is the kingdom. And that's pretty clear. Now, there are some prophecies about the latter days or the last days in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the church. And we can go to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 through 3 for that. This is the mountain of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, having studied what happened at Pentecost, does this now seem a little different to you? Because if you read this just in isolation, it's easy to come up with some sort of physical interpretation or 
you know, something that, that's physically happening, where in reality, this is talking about a spiritual fulfillment. This is happening, or this happened with the church. All people of different types in Jerusalem converted to Christianity, and the word went out from Jerusalem. Remember, that's where everything was going to start. And the mountain of the Lord, which is a kingdom, mountains are kingdoms in Bible prophecy. The mountain of the Lord is the kingdom. That is the kingdom that is, remember Daniel too as well, when when the stone hits the feet of the, the statue and creates a giant mountain that will not be destroyed. Well, the mountain is a, resembles a kingdom. In Revelation, you have a one of the trumpets. Uh, there's a mountain of, the mountain that sinks, a flaming mountain that falls into the sea. Now, is that a physical reality or is it a spiritual reality? Well, we'll get into that, but it's a spiritual reality. Mountains are kingdoms. And so throughout scripture, where there's a prophecy, when there involves a mountain, mountain represents a kingdom. This is not talking about an actual mountain of the Lord. It is a kingdom. So with that in mind, if the house of the Lord is the kingdom and the kingdom is the mountain, the kingdom is the temple, then all of this has been fulfilled already. Do you see how this works? It's not a future reality. It's something that's already been fulfilled. In Acts chapter 2, verse 5, all the nations will flow. So what happened? Well, verse 5 says, Now there are were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That was fulfilled. All the nations will flow into the house of the Lord. What's the house? That's the church. That's the spiritual reality. And that happened at Pentecost. And we know, of course, it began in Jerusalem because in chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is Jesus speaking to them. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So all of this has been fulfilled. They, they thought it was going to be a physical kingdom until they realized the truth. But Jesus made them focus on a spiritual reality. If you Actually, if you read earlier, in chapter 1, verse 6, we were just in chapter 1, verse 8. But this is that verse I just mentioned a couple minutes ago where he said, where they said, So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So this is already after the resurrection. The apostles still thought that they were going to have some sort of physical, re- like, okay, like, all this stuff happened. They were with Jesus for three years, three and a half years. They still didn't get it. They still thought there was a physical reality. And he's guiding them back to a spiritual reality. And of course, once the Holy Spirit came, everything made sense. And so we have to align with the truth. We have to reject this idea of a physical future millennial reign. We have to reject a physical temple being built. This is not Bible prophecy being fulfilled. This is a false, self-fulfilling, engineered prophecy to distract you and to usher in their false new world order. That's really what what it's about. Now, we are living in the last days. And so when when Isaiah talks about in the latter days or in the last days, the reality is we are living in those last days. And so that's another hint that this has been already fulfilled. Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter's sermon, Peter says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. This is the speaking in tongues. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, 
God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So Peter is appropriating this Old Testament prophecy that says, in the last days, he's appropriating it to what's happening at Pentecost. Do you see the significance here? They believe that we're in the last days. That's the significance. Now compare this to chapter 1 of Hebrews, where it talks about the supremacy of God's Son, Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, there's two important things to take from this. First and foremost, this is proof that there are no more prophets. Mormonism, the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, anybody who's calling themselves a prophet, all these churches like Bethel and Elevation and Hillsong, all this stuff about being a prophet is nonsense. There are no more prophets. The prophets were there to bring the message of the Messiah. And once the Messiah was revealed, that's it. To think that there are more prophets that need to tell us what God believes is to reject the fullness of Scripture, is to reject the fullness of God's work through Jesus. It really is. And so you have to be careful. If there are such people in your life, you have to reject them. But the important thing with our discussion today is Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, so we're already living in the last days. The last days are since the cross. These are the last few days. Now, obviously, they're not literal days. They're metaphorical days, but these are the last days. Now, Peter says a day with the Lord is a thousand years. So now I don't take that literally. However, there are some interesting things about that. If you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says in in that parable that he'll return in two days. Now, if we go with a thousand day for a year, you know, metaphor, that's 2,000 years. Well, Jesus is, we're we're at the 11th hour if that's the case. I'm not setting a time, I just think it's interesting. I don't believe that everywhere days are mentioned that they mean a thousand years, but if we are in the last days, it could mean that we are in the 11th hour. And I think that's the case because there's a lot of other historical clues and prophetic clues that would I would agree with that. So we'll, we won't talk about too much of that in this episode, but the whole point is we're in the last days, that the apostles believed we are in the last days. So if the Old Testament prophecy is talking about the last days or the latter days, we're talking about these things like a temple being built in the latter days and people coming to God. Well, what do you make of that? Well, we make of that that's been already fulfilled. The apostles certainly seem to believe that, and that was fulfilled at Pentecost. Now, <clears throat> Ephesians, sorry for my voice, guys. It's just, it's still coming around, and sometimes it gets crazy. But Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 through 10, we see that the plan was revealed through the church. God's plan was revealed through the church. Chapter 3, verse 8 of Ephesians. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things 
so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The plan of salvation was made, was revealed through the church. The plan that was hidden up until the Messiah. Then the Messiah came, he's the branch, he built the temple, which is the church, through his blood, and he brought in the kingdom. See how all of it kind of just makes such easy sense when you put it all together and read context. Now, if we look later in Ephesians, verse 20, Now to whom who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask for or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is glorified. What does this mean? God is glorified through the church. Now, I'm not talking about a physical institution. We'll talk about this in just a minute. I'm talking about the fellowship that we have with other believers in, you know, spending time with one another and worshiping God together in being born again and spreading the gospel. All these things are part of the church, the true church, the physical, the spiritual reality, the kingdom, the house of God, the temple, all those things that we have been talking about, they're the same reality. This communion with one another and God is what glorifies God. Now, here's the, here's the big question. Is there time in all of this for another kingdom where there's even more glory? Or is there going to be something more glorious than the church, which is basically what God is revealing his plan through? Is the church just some temporary thing if Christ purchased it with his blood? And so the answer to these questions is obvious. The church is forever. It is the, the reality that God always had in mind. But obviously history had to build up to that because there was a lot that needed to happen. Now, again, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we see that Christ purchased the church with his blood. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. If Christ purchased it with his own blood, is the church a transitory thing? Are we going, in other words, from the church into like a millennial kingdom? And then there's going to be like a plan for the Jews. And then we have a kingdom as well. Like that doesn't make any sense. No, the reality that we have now with Christ as our king, fellowship with one another, fellowship with God, grace, being able to pray, that reality is the result of thousands of years of history. And more importantly, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That reality is not going away. That reality is revealing God's glory, glorifying God, and revealing his plan and, and unfolding his plan through the church which again is a spiritual reality, not a physical institution. Now I've mentioned this several times, but in Acts chapter four, verse 26 through 28, the cross was predestined. Go read it. It's a, it's a predestined outcome. Of course, I believe in predestination, but you can't get around the fact that the cross was predestined. If the cross was predestined, then that means the church was predestined. The reality that Christ would create because of his sacrifice, which is the church, which was fellowship with God, with one another, becoming brothers and sisters in Christ, that reality was predestined. So it's not going away. God doesn't just change his mind or do things. That's another problem with dispensationalism, with, with this whole idea of dispensations. 
it just, you know, it makes God so whimsical and transitory and, and it makes the plan of salvation this this different thing every time. There's different dispensations. And how many, however many you happen to believe in, there's many theories. But the plan of grace has always been the plan of grace. It's always been about faith. So we have to remember that. It's always been about faith. And the spiritual reality we have now is a reality that's taken quite a lot of things to produce, and specifically the sacrifice of the Son of God. But prophecy, thousands of years of history, precedents, types and shadows, all to bring about the reality we have now. That's not going away. The kingdom is spiritual. It's another thing I want to focus on, which is the kingdom is spiritual. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 24, and some later verses, we talk about the kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the title of the chapter. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. This is reference to the Old Testament. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So when the Israelites were, were with God and he had the mountain and basically they were afraid of being killed. Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. There's the mountain again. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The, the whole chapter, the whole book of Hebrews is an excellent book on typology because it's written to Jews on the fence. And so the author of Hebrews is constantly making parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The entire book of Hebrews, this alone refutes dispensationalism and dispensational thinking because there are so many parallels between the physical things that happened in the Old Testament and how they were types and shadows for future spiritual realities, which dispensationalism ignores because it sees everything everything literal, just like Judaism. As I said they're, they're pretty much the same thing in my book. But if we look later in verse 28 through 29, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We received a kingdom. We received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not a thing that can be touched. It's, a, it's an invisible spiritual reality. They received it, past tense. It can't be seen or touched. It's a spiritual reality. There is no room in all of this for another kingdom to come where Jesus it will reign again as king, meaning he's not reigning now, which again, there's a serious problem with that. <laughs> Very big problem. But... Do you see how all of this ties together? It's a spiritual reality. And the apostles, the, the disciples, even Jesus himself, all testified to a spiritual reality. Chapter 17 of Luke, the coming of the kingdom. This is verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is is in the midst of you. Now they asked him, this is an important exchange, they asked him when 
the kingdom is going to is going to come. He replied with describing the nature of the kingdom. Why is that so important? Because they missed the point. By obviously by asking them when is the kingdom, he knew their hearts and he knew what they were asking. They said, "Well, we don't see the kingdom, so when is it going to come?" And he's answering them with the nature of the kingdom because he's addressing their problem, which is that they don't see it for a spiritual reality. The kingdom of God is among you. It's Jesus. He is the seed. He's the start. He's the cornerstone. And so they they didn't really understand that. The territory is the human heart. It's not a physical place. It can't be touched or destroyed. cannot be shaken, right? It's a spiritual reality. Jesus' presence through the works that he was doing and the healing and the word that he was giving, that was the beginning. That was the kingdom of God already starting. That's why everything was imminent. Jesus was the beginning. Now, of course, it didn't fully come until much later, until the ascension, until Pentecost. All these things had to be fulfilled in steps. But he was the beginning. And that's why everything was so imminent both the apostles and in Jesus' ministry, everything was imminent about the kingdom. It wasn't this idea that there's a future reality where Jesus is going to be king. He didn't say, I'm going to be king in thousands of years from now. Get ready. No, he said, it's it's here, it's coming, it's very soon. It's an imminent reality. Now compare this to earlier in Luke, chapter 11, verse 20, where he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is a famous interchange between the uh, Pharisees and Jesus. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They're basically accusing him of casting out demons by the power of the devil, which makes no sense. And he's basically saying, if, if it is by the finger of God that I do this, then the kingdom of God is already upon you. Now, <laughs> some translations say within you, the kingdom of God is within you, but that's... That doesn't work for one very big reason, which is that the Pharisees were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They were they were destined to be wicked. There was nothing in them that had the kingdom. It's the kingdom is relating to Jesus. It's not relating to everybody's. You know, this is there's a way to take this because it's mistranslated. Why am I drilling at this? There's a way to take this and really create some poor theology. People who believe that everybody in the kingdom of God is within, it's, it becomes this new age thing where everyone is a child of God, everyone is divine. You know, it's, it, you start to merge these thinking and, and theologies with each other and you get this really twisted version of, of the kingdom. And that's not true. The kingdom of God was not in the Pharisees. They were evil. They were like whitewashed tombs. Remember, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He said their father was the devil. I mean, how could they possibly have the kingdom of God within them? How could they possibly be children of God? The Bible tells us that children, to be a child of God, you have to be adopted, which is, again, going back to this idea of who's in the church, people who are born again, who's in the kingdom, people who are born again. How do you become a child of God? You have to be born again. You have to be adopted. All these things, it's the same reality. See, it's all the same thing. But the point is that that's a translation issues. It, it's when he says the kingdom of God, he says it's among you not. And the ESV, which I use, translates it well. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It's not come. It's not within you. That's a very poor translation. So if you have that in your Bible in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, 
Make sure you get a better translation. I use the ESV. ESV is good. It's nice and plain, but you know, every translation has its faults. So you have to, if something doesn't make sense, you have to use context. You have to use different translations. You have to do word study a little bit and maybe dig a little deeper. But here's the conclusion. The kingdom was imminent when Jesus first came. That was very obvious from scripture. And the kingdom is spiritual in nature. Nobody thought that the kingdom was a material manifestation. They did in the beginning, and Jesus corrected them many times throughout his ministry, even after the resurrection, if you remember. And then they realized, oh, all these things were, were physical realities that were types and shadows for spiritual realities. Because the Holy Spirit gave them true seeing, and that's that's really what I think is missing from dispensationalism. I don't think the Holy Spirit is guiding you to believe that there's a physical temple that the Jews need to build so they can hold sacrifices in it and then they're going to have their own separate plan of salvation. That is not being guided by the Holy Spirit. It's really not. John 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a physical kingdom. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It meets spiritual needs, not physical needs. Now, remember when John, John chapter 6, verse 15, they tried to make him king, physical king, but he refused. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to, <clears throat> to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they were trying to make him an idol. Just, it's so funny, it's like literally the scene where they were picking Saul and they rejected God as king and they wanted a fleshly king. They wanted an idol. They wanted somebody to look up to and they can basically worship physically. And they were trying to do that with Jesus again. And so he refused because he knew what their, what their heart was. Now compare that to the triumphal entry where they called him the king and he didn't correct anybody because they were recognizing scripture being fulfilled. So that was a spiritual situation, whereas this situation in John that I just read, people were just hungry for a political, physical reality. And so he refused that because he knew what their, what was in their hearts, obviously. So he refused to be physically, physical king because the truth was spiritual. Remember also that God was angry with them for, for rejecting him as king. He was angry for them rejecting him as spiritual king over them. And so he gave them physical king. So why would God go back to that system? If, if that was like a teaching tool, if that was a type and shadow for a greater spiritual reality, if Jesus rejected being physically king over them, why would, why would God go back to that? Remember, Jesus couldn't even reign as king physically over the throne of David. In Jerusalem, because the tribe of Judah, the line of, of kings, they were cursed. They couldn't rule anymore. And he couldn't be priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi. So something had to be different about Jesus's kingship and ministry, and that's because the the kingship is spiritual and the law was changed through his death. That's what he, the book of Hebrews tells us. And we looked at that in the episode on, the, on Jesus being king. But Final thing I want to put is the parable of the leaven. 
Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid it in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. I love these parables. You know, sometimes they're so short. And it's like, wow, so much is in there. And yet it's so short. How, did, how does leaven work to make a, a lump of bread rise? Well, it's, it's unseen. It's, it's distributed throughout the, the lump and it makes it rise. And so the same thing it, it, with the kingdom of heaven. It works in unseen ways and yet it, it rises profoundly. It's unstoppable in a sense, right? And so that's what the point is, that the kingdom of heaven is not something that you can see. You don't see the yeast, but you see its effects. You see the you don't see the leaven, you see the rising, the growth of the leaven. So with that in mind, we have to remember a very important thing. The church as a physical institution is not the church that the apostles are talking about is a spiritual institution. The fellowship of believers, the body of Christ, the kingdom, the communion with each other and the Lord, all those things are spiritual realities. Now, of course, we have physical bodies and there are places that we meet, but it was very loosely organized. What happened over the last 2,000 years is very significant. And that is because a lot of people came around and started to institutionalize this idea of the church. And by, again, it's the, it's the devil f- putting your attention on physical, fleshly things. And there's a very important reason why I'm focusing on this. Because there's a rise in this idea of, of the kingdom, uh, of kingdom entrepreneurs, of the new apostolic reformation. All these things that are distracting people into a fleshly, worldly salvation. Postmillennialism and dispensationalism are two very prominent end times theologies that rely on this idea in in various forms. Now, in the third century, we have a couple of key things to keep in mind that happen. The very first churches were just meeting in people's homes and having fellowship, breaking bread, talking about scripture, having fellowship basically, and praying. That was the original model. Now, very early on in the third century, St. Augustine wrote his book, City of God, which he basically painted this idyllic theocracy, which is equating the church to the kingdom, but making it a physical reality. Again, turning back to turning back the clock to what the Jews thought, what even the apostles thought before they were enlightened into this physical reality where there's this perfect material expression of the kingdom and it's a physical kingdom an actual castle and, you know, with walls and, you know, it was a theocracy. It was ruled by the church as a physical institution. So that started a philosophy of this kingdom being a fleshly and the church being a fleshly physical reality. And of course, as time went on, it just got worse and worse. In the fourth century, you had Constantine who legalized Christianity and made it a church state religion. By the sixth century, you had the papacy take power and the papacy was obviously in control for 1,260 years until 1790. We'll get into all these times in a future episode, but it was in control for throughout the Dark Ages and into the 1800s. And then there was some things that happened. Of course, the Vatican is still in control of a lot of things. It's engineered quite a lot of things in history, and it will come back in power. But this idea of the church becoming 
a physical fleshly institution and how it's all about the church. And, you know, this is a deception. We have to be very careful because a lot of churches, especially big churches like the Catholic Church, the Mormon Church, the uh, not that the Mormon Church is necessarily Christian, but still it's, it's posing as Christian. So if you're in there, I hope that you see the truth because the Mormons believe in a different gospel and a different Christ. But either way, that's a time for another episode. But the churches, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, all these institutionalized churches, they have appropriated all these scriptures when it talks about the church. You have to be you have to use discernment to be very careful. When they talk about the, the church as a as a spiritual reality, they appropriate these verses to mean the church is a physical institution. That's not what it's intending to mean. And this is, again, the work, I think, of the enemy, because the enemy's job is to put your attention on the physical fleshly realities. The, the big churches, they fuse themselves into this theology to justify their institution. So you have to be careful. The church is just a group of genuine believers. It's not a material institution. It never will be. It's the fellowship and the kingdom that cannot be shaken. It can't be touched. It can't be seen. All those things that we read, it's not talking about giant temples, which basically what the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church have created. So is the Mormon Church. They just create temples all over again where people come and worship instead of seeing that the temple is a spiritual reality. See how that works? They've, all they've done is recreate the sacrificial system and created a physical, fleshly, you know, expression of a spiritual reality. Look at megachurches in the U.S. I mean, it's it's really quite crazy. But why is all this important is because, again, groups like the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, kingdom theology, post-millennials that believe that we have to convert the entire world to Christianity and have this theocracy before Jesus will come, that's... That's Talmudic messianic theology. The, the Jews who wrote the Talmud, the Talmud is an antichrist book, believe that there has to be a golden age before the Messiah will come. That is straight antichrist because it basically says that we have to do something to bring Jesus as opposed to what the Bible actually says, that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and Jesus is going to come rescue us before God's wrath is poured out. Now, he's not rescuing us with a secret rapture, but we are meeting the Lord in the air after the mark of the beast has been implemented at some point in time. So it's completely opposite to what the Bible teaches. This idea of the kingdom becoming more and more expressed physically. No, the kingdom is a spiritual reality that spreads through the gospel and through people becoming born again. Not through people making more money, being a kingdom entrepreneur. I see so many ads for that. I mean, people are marrying physical, material, financial success with the kingdom, where, you know, you're giving money to the kingdom. The kingdom is a spirituality that doesn't need money. That's the point. Do you think the apostles were rich? Absolutely not. And yet they spread the kingdom all over the world. So this idea that we fuse material gains and, and material success with building the kingdom, that's not building the kingdom. That is building the Antichrist kingdom, because the Antichrist will pose as a false Christ, and probably there will be a false millennial reign where there's going to be a physical, fleshly 
lusting of the eyes type of salvation. It's not going to be salvation, but it's going to be a false golden age where people think that, oh, we've, we've arrived. That's it. We're in the millennial kingdom. We're in the, you know, golden age because of the things we look around and see physically. Instead of seeing that, wow, people are genuinely being born again. But that reality, the Bible says that there's going to be a great falling away at the end of the age. That Satan is released, and I believe we're living in that time now. And so, how do those things, two things reconcile? They don't. You're either an optimist, which I believe you're being deceived if you're an optimist, or you are a pessimist about the end times, because they are getting worse, and they will only get worse. They will appear to get better, but that's going to be the greatest deception of all time. So we have to be, this is a very dangerous ideology. It sets the stage for the Antichrist to take power and for people to believe that that's a good thing. Do you see how all that comes together? Remember, the, the power at the end of the age is going to be something that looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. That's the second beast system that's going to help People are going to force them to worship the first beast. The first beast is the papacy. It's the Vatican. It's the Antichrist power on the earth that ruled for quite a long time and persecuted more Christians than any other power in history. And is the mother of harlots and so many other things that we need to get into. They're so important. Gosh, I wish I had more time, but we will have time in a future episode. In either case, we'll cover all of this. The conclusion is this. The church... The kingdom, the body of Christ, the house of God, the temple of God, being a child of God, all these things are the same reality. So all these verses where it's talking about a temple being built, it's not talking about a third temple. That's an affront to the gospel. It's talking about the spiritual reality that was fulfilled through the church, which Christ built by purchase, purchasing it through his blood. They're physical realities, physical things that describe a spiritual reality of communion with one another and with God. The church began at Pentecost, which is when the kingdom also began, but the, the Christ was king after the ascension. So however you want to time that, I don't want to be dogmatic about it. It's not really that big of a deal. The point is that Christ is already king, and the church began at Pentecost. It's, it's, it's all spiritual stuff. It's spiritual in nature. And what that means is that the millennial rule is now. We are in the kingdom. We are in the millennial rule where Christ is ruling while his enemies are being put under his feet. The gospel is going out to the nations. But we are, the thing is, we are at the end of that time period, which means some other important things too. Namely, that Satan's been released to start deceiving the nations and rallying them for this one world government, rallying them for war with Christ. All that is coming true. Slow and steady. All the religions are going to be united in some way. There's going to be some religio-political power. Stay tuned. A lot of, we have a lot to talk about in this series, but I want you to consider a couple of other things before we go. The terms for the kingdom and the church are used interchangeably. They're equated to one another, in other, in other words. They began around the same time, same place, same occasion. Pentecost, the Ascension, all these things were happening in a very close time frame. They have the same head. Jesus is head of the church. Jesus is head of the kingdom. They accomplish the same purpose. Okay? People in them partake of the Lord's table. So if you're part of the Lord's table, you're in the kingdom. You're also in the church. 
they are entered to in the same way and in the same steps, meaning you're born again. That's how you get in the kingdom. That's how you get into the church. And they consist of the same people. That means there's nobody who's in the kingdom who's not in the church. So now, why would, here's the big question. Why would God ordain two of the same things with the same people, same requirements, and yet they be different in some way? The answer is he wouldn't. They are the same thing. The church is the kingdom. The idea of a future millennial reign is false. Dispensationalism and futurism are based on lies, deceptions. These things are designed to take your attention off spiritual realities and and put it in some future thing that hasn't happened yet, looking after future physical realities and fleshly things rather than spiritual things. Another thing is the kingdom now type of theology or the NAR type of theology where you have dominionists who believe that the kingdom is a fleshly thing. The church is this fleshly thing, and it's an organization that has to have a material expression. This is also a lie. It's the same thing. You're looking at physical things. The church has never been a, I, I said it was never intended to be an institution because man is flawed and sinful in nature. It was meant to be a relationship. That's really important. So walk the narrow road. You on one side you're tempted to look in the future and all this, you know, focus on Israel and Judaism and blah blah blah. On the other side, you know, we we have to take control and create the kingdom so Jesus will will come and there's kingdom entrepreneurs and you got to make money for the kingdom and make more more temples. I mean, it's you got to walk the narrow road. The the road of Christianity is an internal road. It's about having a relationship with God daily praying daily, having fellowship with other believers. And of course, we can gather in places, we can go to church. You know, it's it's too late to change the system now, but fundamentally the church is the body of believers. It's a state of the heart. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's a kingdom that cannot be seen or observed. It is an invisible reality because we have an invisible king, a spiritual king. So remember these things. Next week, we're going to jump into, we're going to switch gears if you just joined us this episode, then I highly recommend going and checking out the previous episode so that you have some context for all these things. Next week, we're going to switch gears into Daniel. I'm really excited about that because Daniel is the key to the end times, especially the 70 weeks prophecy, which we're going to start with. So I'll have also a calendar for you, or not a calendar, like a, well, kind of like a calendar, like a prophecy lineup. I don't even know what to call it, but it's basically a graph that graphs all of these prophecies in Revelation and Daniel into a timeline. Maybe that's a better word, timeline. It's going to graph them all into a timeline that you can reference visually to see how these things all align with each other. And they truly do align quite well. It's uh, it's really profound when you see it all laid out on, on a piece of paper. It's a digital piece of paper, but either way, when you see it all visually lined out, I think it's really useful. So we're going to get into that. That's going to switch gears. We're, we're sort of done with this millennial kingdom idea. I hope that you've learned something. I hope that you've seen through the deception of lies, because again, the cost is very great. If Jesus is not king right now, then there's no gospel. And if you believe that there's a future millennial reign that has to be physical, then you're setting yourself up for probably the greatest deception of all time, which is what they are engineering to bring about, I believe, through all the things that are happening. So stay sharp, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. God bless. God bless.